You're listening to ReachMD XM167, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to part one of conference coverage highlights from the Alliance for Continuing Education in the Health Professions 37th Annual Conference held January 21st through 24th in Orlando, Florida. I'm your host, Lawrence Sherman, Senior Vice President for Educational Strategy at Prova Education and also the host of Lifelong Learning here on ReachMD. One of the big stories from this conference is that the organization has changed its name to reflect a new direction, so henceforth, the organization will be known as the Alliance for Continuing Education in the Health Professions, the ACEHP, moving away from just medical to the full healthcare professional spectrum, and they can be seen at acehp.org. Joining us now is Bob Christofko. Bob is currently director in the Medical Education Group at Pfizer in New York. Bob, it's good to see you. I thought we'd talk about a couple of different things today. I thought we'd start off with uh, talking about how mentoring could be used really well in the medical community. I know it's there informally in some places and formally in some places, but maybe we can talk a little bit about where you see the best opportunity for mentoring fitting in the practicing medical community. Well, you know, I think you can find good examples of mentoring in, in medicine today. And I think that, that some of those examples are now being incorporated in the new curricula in medical schools where um, the emphasis is now more on um, collaboration, more on the correlation of science to practice, where that correlation is done with uh, small developmental kinds of groups of students as that in also include uh, faculty. And, you know, medicine is is famous for... Uh, that variation on mentoring known as shadowing, where a student or a, a junior faculty member is shadowing the expert, uh, learning sort of in, at the coattails. And I think that with what's become known about the power that mentoring uh, presents, that shadowing can, can expand in some um, ways that these new curricula are I believe, are beginning to enable much better than in the days when it was a rote mechanical kind of process where then the student was was suddenly taken from the textbook into the clinic uh, almost um, with a shock value kind of change. And um, I think we're seeing a, a different, more human kind of approach to it. I think that's right. And, and uh, you know, when you do the pre-shadowing and post-shadowing discussion, you talk about what do you do if something happens, and then you talk about what did we do when something happened. It really reinforces that, that whole relationship. That's exactly right, and frequently those kinds of encounters are what helps students make decisions about careers because there's a certain enthusiasm exuded by that practitioner or, or mentor. There's a kind of um, uh, inquisitiveness that comes from that exchange that's a lot more, um, that, that makes that process a lot more open than it may have been in the past and a lot more engaging so that, that learning is encouraged. It's not, a, um, it's not a, a, a something that one gets penalized for the wrong answer. Great, great. I, I think those are important things that our listeners can learn from, and I hope they do, and, and I hope they tell us what they do. Uh, let's switch to something a little more fun. Uh, you, uh, you gave a presentation where you talked about um, leadership examples from classical composers and what we can learn about implementing strategies for associations and organizations. Uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about that? that was a, it, it was nice for the organization to allow for something that might seem to be a little 
um, over the edge in terms of a, of an, a learning approach. But the reality is that um, if I can personalize this a little bit, some of my heroes as I've um, uh, grown to adulthood have been classical composers. Composers like Haydn, for example, who literally was functioning as an indentured servant. And in that indentured servitude, he didn't, he didn't belabor that circumstance. He used it to his advantage. It, not only to his advantage in terms of the opportunity to be creative, but he also used it to his advantage in terms of, of, a, of being creative in a collaborative way. Haydn wrote a lot of music that was written based upon the, the musicians he had in the house at the time. So he didn't sit around on his hands bemoaning his circumstance. Rather, he took that circumstance as an advantage as compared to somebody like Mozart who struggled almost daily to find patrons to pay to develop the music that he, he wrote. So uh, not only that, but as Haydn aged, he blossomed. Um, when his servitude was literally concluded, he went off to London at a very uh, old age in, in those times and actually made um, some of his most extraordinary composition um, um, contributions to the, to the symphonic form in the, London, in the series of London symphonies. So, well, you can tell I'm, I have a little bit of passion around the, the classical kind of composer, but, but it's that model. It's that model that allows someone to uh, take risks, to, to uh, decide that the old rules simply won't do anymore. Or in the case of somebody like Mendelssohn, for example, who, who lived in those rules but was extraordinarily creative. Uh, Brahms is another example. Um, uh, and then, the, interestingly enough, um, um, Mendelssohn's uh, contemporary was Berlioz whose music was was really edgy in some respects. So there's I we thought my counterpart uh, Harry Gallus and I thought that this was a an, a perfect opportunity to to try and express in a different way those kinds of leadership qualities that drive the creative person to do creative things. Um, and yes, these guys were geniuses. I'm not making uh, uh, any bones about that. But but it's but a genius without implementation or without that effort to take it one step further or to test that genius in, a, in an environment that might find it a little bit alarming is, um, is frankly, the lesson I think that those kinds of, of creative people can teach us. Well, I, I think two things strike me about that. First of all, it's sort of like blending style and substance. So if you look at just a presenter... If they're really good with the content but are not thinking about how they're presenting it to their learners, I think it's not as impactful as if they use some form of creativity with the comfort of knowing that their content is secure. They'll probably have a better outcome. And the other thing that struck me was it's sort of a blend of serendipity and structure, right? So you know what you're trying to do, and as life goes on, you sort of take advantage of moments that happen, the teachable moments, and you get better outcomes. Well, and isn't that the way science is, too? That uh, taking, for example, representational art. Well, there, there came a time when artists wanted to 
branch out from the standard let's take a you know pristine picture of the pasture land kind of scene and um, express it in a more abstract way or in a in a in a way that applied a different set of techniques. Most of that art, at its inception, was um, was misunderstood and and frankly not well received. Think of some of the things in science that where the pursuit of that science. Um, the science had come to some place where um, it was no longer satisfactory to to continue to sort of, if you will, play by the rules. So um, there were explorations of of other kinds of of basic mechanisms. Uh, I think of the gentleman who, uh, for years, was telling people that H. pylori was was not a um, a GI condition; it was an infection and while I'm not a clinician, uh, at least that's how I understand that. And he was he was ignored um, consistently until uh, others, uh, as well as this gentleman, uh, pursued research to demonstrate the point. And had this person not had the the um, that that sort of uh, that connection with or desire to uh, test that theory to to experiment. Um, where would we be? And, I, I, you know, I think that there's, that's not insignificant. That what, what composers and other kinds of creative minds have to teach us is not insignificant to um, the same creativity and uh, genius in science. If you've just joined us, you're listening to part one of conference coverage highlights from the 37th Annual Alliance for Continuing Education in the Health Professions Conference. I'm Lawrence Sherman. And you know what struck me as you were saying that is that we could learn something about faculty development as well and, and, you know, sort of the timeline of watching a faculty member grow from looking at the Beatles, okay? Because if you look at their first album, Meet the Beatles, it was very conformist and very straightforward and great, loved it, right? And then look at Sgt. Pepper, right? You look at that album and you say everything they did on there turned everything on its ear, so it was an evolution of the development of the creative form that made them grow and their outcomes continued to improve and at least level one satisfaction uh, or level, level one participation, level two satisfaction were there. I'm not sure there's knowledge transfer, <laughs> but, but I think we could look at that as well. So I think we can learn a lot about the discipline of medicine and medical education from looking at these creative types. I think it's absolutely true. I, one of my other favorite examples is the Igor Stravinsky, who in 1913's first performance of his Rite of Spring in Paris, it literally um, incited a riot. And, you know, now Stravinsky, and, and if you listen to that music today, it does have a certain quality about it that if you imagine what it must have sounded like in 1913, uh, you might be uh, joining the riot. But in reality, now when you look at Stravinsky's influence over time, it's not about it's not about the event that was precipitated by something creative like that. It's about that creative process and what it what it uh, enables in others. Because Stravinsky is seen as one of the fathers of um, the movement of modern music that has brought us all sorts of creative kinds of of um, expression that is not that kind of creative expression is not an irrelevant concept 
for medicine or patient care, especially when we think about it perhaps in a more primary care sort of orientation where the patient-centered medical home is that opportunity to be holistic about the perspective one has about the treatment of a patient that is very connected to um, very connected to a broad spectrum of, of, of clinical as well as community as well as personal and, and um, other kinds of issues. So we like to think that there's, there's something to be, to be taught here, but also it's, it's about the enthusiasm for learning that may come from using a little bit different technique to engage people. Well, I, I think you know this, but uh, I did a study a few years back on the role of humor in continuing medical education. And uh, we found that uh, humor did not detract from the education. It enhanced the experience. And when you compared a humorous activity side-by-side -side with a non-humorous activity, or we'll just call it standard activity, that uh, the outcomes were at least as good, if not better, on all the questions. So, uh, so I agree with you. But you, you know, it struck me. I have the name for, uh, for a session on this. It's uh, sort of creativity is cognitive dissonance. Because if you shake it up a little bit, Bob, you know what? People might just learn better because they'll listen and they'll say, really? Well, and you find in the literature that people learn very well, and there's, there's evidence, that stories are an extraordinary way to teach both the professional as well as the, as the um, patient. And you can see why, because there's an there's a, a almost automatic connection to the story itself, uh, to the reality of the circumstance and the people that are involved that makes it, that makes it come alive. It makes it come away from that, uh, the, the more abstract notions of clinical markers and things like that. Yeah, I mean, I think that's why we see the success of the TED-type conferences as well, where you have those short, focused, story-like presentations, and it would be really interesting to see what the outcomes were. I don't know that that's ever been measured, but, but I think you're right. I think that storytelling is tremendous in education. There's literature on that, and, and it really is very interesting to think about it. And we as a medical education community and our learners could probably all benefit. So our listeners here, the practicing healthcare professionals, would probably benefit from that. So I think it's something we should continue to talk about and uh, continue to visit here and elsewhere. Bob, is there anything else you'd like to talk about before we wrap this up? No, I, I guess one other thing I'd like to observe that was something that uh, struck me about this meeting, and that was one of the early presentation, general presentations about uh, the complexities of healthcare and the role of continuing education and quality improvement, and how people are beginning to understand the need for a more direct connection between the two, and I, I, it makes me think about the kinds of I've seen a lot in my years as a continuing education and faculty person, and I'm enthused by the fact that this, that this complex world is beginning to look at the, the potential contribution of professional education as being more collaborative, as being more uh, potentially more data-driven, and my argument from that is, connecting back to our previous discussion, is that if, if we can keep those things in mind and find a creative way to make that um, message come forward, then I think, we're, I think we've got something that um, will facilitate some improvement 
that is uh, maybe all, perhaps not always measurable, but certainly will um, help the the enthusiasm of all of us involved in it to to be a little bit more upbeat. Bob, thanks for joining us today. It's always a pleasure to chat with you. I appreciate the opportunity. Thank you. This has been part one of conference coverage highlights from the 37th Annual Conference of the Alliance for Continuing Education in Health Professions. I'm Lawrence Sherman on ReachMD XM167. ReachMD, online, on demand, and on air. Visit us at ReachMD.com, and thank you for listening.